Welcome to Clinical Corner. I'm your host, Leslie Kamenoff, and I've been a yoga educator since 1979. And most of that time, I've had the privilege of learning from working with individuals. In each episode of this podcast, I'll chat with other clinicians about the history, techniques, and stories related to the healing work they do with their clients. The premium version of this episode, in which my guest and I review and analyze a video recording of them working with a client in a private session, is available by subscription at breathingproject.com. Now, let's get to our episode. Welcome to episode six of Clinical Corner, in which I have a delightful conversation with my dear old friend, Jay Brown. Uh, I've been on Jay's podcast, uh, Jay Brown Yoga Talks, uh, three times now. So uh, it was about time that uh, I turned the tables on him and had him on my podcast. Um, Jay was one of the original teachers at the Breathing Project when we first opened here in New York City in 2003. Uh, he went on from there to open his very own studio, Abhyasa Yoga, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which he ran for about 10 years. Um, once he closed Abhyasa, he uh, developed a thriving online community, um, which is anchored by his uh, podcast, his uh, weekly um, online classes that he teaches. He also has an online version of his teacher's training that he's just started up again this year. Um, he does extensive writing uh, from time to time. Uh, so he has really found a way to uh, create community through this uh, medium of uh, online education. Uh, you will hear him talking about how both of us actually are getting back out on the road to teach in-person events. This was recorded about a month uh, before its airing, so uh, he was about to go out and teach for the Yoga Teachers Association, which is just uh, upstate a bit from New York City. Uh, I was about to head out to uh, Montreal to uh, teach a weekend workshop there and attend the International Fascia Research Congress uh, from there. Uh, I went to um, Los Angeles area, and I've just recently returned from teaching at Tri-Yoga in London. So all of that has happened since this was recorded. So um, I hope you enjoy this uh, conversation as much as I did with my dear old friend, Jay Brown. We uh, have our recording in progress. We've been chatting just a little bit. Good to see you, Jay. And I was just tickled to see you wearing the Breathing Project uh, t-shirt with the logo on it. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, I mentioned to you before we just started recording, I'll mention again for anybody who listens that I'm a Gen Xer and I have a drawer full of prized t-shirts that only get worn on special occasions. So this very rare limited edition Breathing Project shirt had no better occasion than this to be pulled out. Yeah, well, it just warms the, the cockle of my heart to see the logo there on your chest. Um, and I think, yeah, I think I only have one cockle left at this point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this was the uh, the one-year anniversary of my ablation procedure when I had my heart fixed last year, so it's been okay. on my mind. Yeah, but hey, I've got normal EKGs all, all year long, so that's a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. And we are here to talk about some clinical stuff. Um, and uh, you were one of the uh, first people I thought of uh, inviting on, not um, not only because I've, I've been on your uh, podcast uh, three times now, I think, um, but uh, the, the way that I know your work has evolved over the years is, is almost a case study uh, in not just 
your practice of working with other people, but in your approach to your own yoga in your own body, a case study in the need to to modify and and adapt and uh, to to really have that uh, that individual uh, approach to what what you're doing that that is so characterized by Desikachar's teachings and and we're both of course deeply influenced by Desikachar. Um, the last interview I did it'll be it'll be posting soon is with uh, Larry Payne and uh, mm. he and I go back even further than uh, you and I. And OG OG. Yeah, he's he's like the OG. <laughs> I introduced him as like um, one of my oldest yoga friends, and I meant it in both senses. Um, <laughs> that he's mm. he's old and he's an old <laughs> yoga friend. Um, so yeah, so as you know, the the first half of this is just a conversation about a, a, a little bit of uh, your history and some of our shared history, perhaps. And then uh, you sent a lovely video that we can uh, review in the um, in the in the second uh, part which uh, listeners will now know is available um, on the uh, premium version of the podcast, uh, which uh, you can uh, get into for very cheap at breathingproject.com. So, um, and I have to tell you, you know, I, I have been inspired over the years to see all the different ways that you have created a viable online presence for yourself between the podcast and the streamed classes and the teachers classes and um everything else that uh, that you and and Josh have been able to put together it's been quite impressive uh and well I mean we have to give credit where credit's due because not only have you seen some of that but you've seen all of it because it began on the East Sutra AOL listserv well the that's very, that's the shared history yeah it goes yeah. way back yeah I mean, the very first thing I ever wrote was called Notes from a Concerned Practitioner and Teacher. Yep. And it was basically this very simple little thing that said, hey, some of the things I were taught hurt me. Maybe we should question some of the things we're being taught. <laughs> and um, you posted it out. I think you had like a list of like some 5,000 or some emails on AOL or something like that, if I remember. Yeah, it, which was not designed to, to run large mailing lists from. It was mm -hmm. really a pain in the ass. Did he get special oh, permission yeah. or something, yeah. if I recall? Yeah, yeah, it was. No, I was, there was no ethics. I was just scraping emails from everything. You know, people would send me an email where they unintentionally exposed all the recipients. Like, oh, more emails. I just dump it into my list. And But I, I actually started that list very simply just by, seeing who on AOL had listed yoga as an interest. It was that simple. And I just scraped all those emails as much as I could. And it, and it got started that way, along with a few people that I knew. But not everyone had email addresses back then. It was really a novelty. And and Well, uh, I got emails back from people. And I think I ended up with a list of about 60 of people who kind of had responded to that. Uh, the kernel piece. of your and mailing list really was the responses you got from the piece you wrote on eSutra. Exactly. That's why I mean. So now we're whatever it is, 20 years later. I don't even know how many years later it is. It's a long time, maybe 25 years later or something. And um, that's whatever it is I'm doing now. It all started with that one post. Yeah, it's pretty much exactly 25 years later because that would have been around 97. Uh, that's right. So, and that was. And my motivation, of course, what was happening then was um, I had just dropped out of the ad hoc committee that was discussing the certification standards 
which eventually turned into the two and the 500 hour stuff. And you and I have been involved in those discussions almost from the beginning as well Mm -hmm. um, as a concerned practitioner. Um, (laughs) uh, And uh, I just, I basically got tired of writing the same email to everyone who asked why I wasn't involved in this anymore. I said, it would be much more efficient if I just had a list and posted a statement about it. And, and that was sort of the, the, the initial impetus for me creating a list that um, we could have discussions on. And um, yeah, it was, uh, I remember when I first had email, like signing up for every mailing list I could think of, because I just wanted to get email. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And then everybody had newsletters and then there was blogs. Then it turned into blogs at some point, but I will say that that, that post also, you know, it's funny. It's interesting to me that you, I was thinking earlier today about coming to do this with you. And I was thinking about that. You called it clinician's corner, clinical corner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Clinician's corner, clinical corner. Yeah. And that you, you chose the word clinical because, you know, I generally don't think of myself as working in a clinical way. I know what you meant because I saw your episode with Gary, where you talked about the moment where you knew that you were a clinician and, and the way you describe it there, that's about when you're just working with real people in real situations rather than like being in a laboratory or something. I think that's what you, you mean by that. Well, it was but when I also, closed the door uh, and enclosed me in a room with another human, I was expected to do something to help them. Basically, that was like, that was a holy shit moment. It was like, w- 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 wait a minute. Um how do you talk? How do you relate to this person? You know, I mean, it was, a, and I didn't have training for that. I had training to do the thing that I was, you know, expected to do with the person, which at that point was like electrotherapy. I was, you know, a biomedical technician. I wasn't teaching them yoga or anything, but still the idea of being enclosed in a space for half hour, an hour, whatever it was. And, and this person is here with me to get help. That was like, how do I be that person? Right. I mean, I relate to that. I've certainly had that experience myself. But when when I hear the word clinical, that's not what I thought of. Yeah, yeah. I actually flashed to which what I was going to go to because that initial post on eSutra led to me going to those meetings at the yoga therapy conference in 2009. Yeah. We were in those meetings, the Council of Schools initiative. Right. It preceded the Sitar conference by a couple. That's right. And you were there. Mm -hmm. And Cause that, like you said, we both had problems with yoga lines. I remember confronting the whatever head of the yoga lines mm-hmm. at that, those meetings, I was very rude to him. I was like young and punky, but I remember in that meeting, yeah. cause I was trying to figure out whether what I did was yoga therapy or not. I yeah. stood up and I asked, yeah. does yoga therapy mean a clinical application? Mm-hmm. And Gary's eyes lit up. He was like, yes, that's the question. And he was saying, yes, it was. Mm -hmm. But when I said that, I wasn't thinking of the clinical that you just said. I was thinking of like the way in like when you, we go to my daughter's psychiatrist and he just asks questions and then gets information and then puts it in to the database. And like they were talking about in those meetings of like someone comes in and they have scoliosis and they get a number. And then there's going to be a set of yoga practices that go with that. Mm -hmm. You know, like instead of surgeries and drugs, we're going to use breathing and moving exercises. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not interested in that. Cause there is another meeting, which is kind of cold and 
clinical can mean like, what was it? I wrote it down. Clinical Efficient and unemotional, right? It's the meanings. It can be that whole reductionistic way of looking at things, which I've always fought against yes. in the field of yoga or yoga therapy or whatever we're, we're calling it. It's not just, you know, oh, we're doing physical therapy, but we're substituting yoga exercises for PT exercises. It's not, it, it's a di- an entirely different mindset. Um, and for me, a clinician is someone that has uh, skills uh, in working with another human to help them. Um, and I like it better than therapist uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, well, you wrote after that meeting, you wrote, I am not a yoga therapist. I wrote yoga therapy is not yoga. We both wrote something about after those meetings that was yeah. wanting to make some distinctions for some reason or another. Or, or um, say that some of these distinctions don't make sense. Like, because your, your yeah. thing, which I resonated with also was um, for yoga therapists, aren't we just talking about a very skilled yoga teacher? Right. And, and, you know, and, and Gary, of course, uh, has this um, very defensible uh, argument about, well, no, this is a tradition that goes way, way back. It's a sister science to Ayurveda. There's a skill set. There are competencies. There's a knowledge base uh, and you can train in it and then call yourself a yoga therapist or, you know, yoga chikitsa, the, the, you know, Sanskrit designation. And, and I always, wanted to have room for that perspective at IAYT that didn't exclude people that didn't necessarily have that view, you know, and, and my thing was always, well, if that's the case, then NAMA, the National Ayurvedic Medical Association, and that branch of IAYT should join forces and legislate or lobby or whatever. And like, yeah, you want to get it covered by insurance. You want to go down that route. You want to be, you want to be licensed eventually fine, but you know, don't have that spill over into somebody that just has learned over the years to skillfully interact with another person using the tools of yoga as an extension of, of their, their life and commitment to to the practice because like Desikachar, as much as he was steeped in the tradition from his father uh, and, and trained Gary, I think would resonate a little bit more with the like demedicalizing of, of the field, you know, mm-hmm. rather than saying, Oh, we want to be part of healthcare delivery. And, you know, you, you, I think we're always arguing that, that, that idea that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a yoga teacher who knows how to work with people individually. That doesn't make me a different thing. <laughs> well, I also felt like, especially in those meetings, because they were establishing the new standards, the what became the 800-hour yoga therapy standards. And I just felt like what a lot of it was about, and I've spoken to a few people on my show about this over the years, that it was about distinguishing certain approaches in yoga from like the power vinyasa stuff and like all these other things that were happening at the gym that people were calling yoga and they wanted to distinguish other approaches, therapeutic approaches. So there was all these people in that room. Yeah. But like you and me who were doing that, who were had therapeutic approaches who, you know, weren't working in the same way that other people didn't hold that same idea. Like you said, and I, my case that I made was, I even tried to like sell them on maybe there should be like a 200 hour baseline standard because I felt like 
what was going to happen is we're going to take yoga practice that's actually about yoga. That's not about like working out or whatever other things we might use it for. And we're going to relegate that to like a pillar again, or where like a high art where only people who go to the university or have $20,000 to spend and then wear white coats, that's where you get the yoga that doesn't hurt you. Yeah. And I was saying, we need that in all yoga classes. I said, we need yoga therapy in all yoga classes, even at the gym. And I was advocating for like, we got to bring this to the grassroots, not some high art. Or at least the perspective, uh, rather than seeing it as a profession or a practice. Um, you know, one of the skill sets that you want to end up having if you stay in this long enough and work with enough people you eventually end up working with people individually, you know, and I wanted to get to that part in your history because you talk about it a lot on the podcast where, you know, the heyday of like, it was cool and chic to have a private yoga teacher, but there's a big difference between the skill set of leading people through a group practice. And then you have a single person in front of you. Right. But before we get to that, I just wanted to point out something before what you said about separating from the fitness, that, the Yoga Alliance was trying to do that with the initial standards. It's like trying to separate a reasonably length training, teacher training from a weekend training. And that was literally yoga fit. That's what they were doing, right? Hmm. Uh, you might want to try and get Beth Shaw on the podcast at some point and ask her about the origin of yoga fit. Hmm. Because that was that was such a driving conversation that got us into that room is like did you know they're training yoga teachers in a weekend and and it sounds crazy when you say it that way but at the point at which she introduced that training there was a real need in the market there was a, de a, a the demand for yoga teachers far exceeded the supply and all she did was she went to the gyms and said hey you've got you got aerobics teachers you got you know group fitness people who know how to lead people in 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 activity Give them to me for a weekend. I'll teach teach them how to teach a yoga class. And they're already on they the They can payroll. learn a sequence in a weekend, no problem. Yeah, exactly. There's no new hires involved here. They're already on the books. And, you know, they'll be able to lead this new class that you can advertise at the end of this week. It was brilliant, actually, you know, as as a as just a filling a need in the marketplace. But but then, you know, once we had the the, the yoga alliance standards, it was like, oh, well that became a menu or a recipe for people to have all kinds of different kinds of trainings, including fitness-based trainings and more, you know, workout type stuff. And then the yoga therapy, as you said, has to say, well, we're not that either. And, and then, but there's always going to be another group of people who think whatever standards have been established aren't enough, you know, and that's the <laughs> ironic thing. <laughs> and sure. it's, just, it's just how it goes. Um, so let's get to that point in your life. You've been teaching group practice for a bit. It's it's during this um, golden age that you like to talk about on on the podcast, um, Jay Brown Yoga Talks podcast. If anyone's listening to this podcast who isn't aware of Jay's, which I don't think is possible, anyway, go check it out. Um, so, do you remember the first time you were confronted with just a single individual student and what that was like? and how you handled the situation? Well, I I, I taught one-to-one -one before I taught group classes because I had a friend of mine who 
while when I first got really into yoga, while I was going to classes at Jiva Mukti on Second Avenue, where I met you. Yeah. And I have to add, just as a quick aside, I did not realize that you shared a moment with Gary where he had corrected you on from down dog to up dog to down dog. And you know, you did the same thing to me the first time I was ever in your class. Absolutely. Exactly the same, which was incredible <laughs> to me when you when I saw that. I was like, that happened to me. I was in Leslie's class. And he did the same thing to me. Yep. But so I was going to classes. I was really into yoga and I was actually in a really bad place. Mm. And I had a friend who was helping me and talking to me and said, you know, well, what do you want to do? And I gave her a list of things I didn't want to do. And she said, no, that's not what I asked you. And I said, right now, all I want to do is play my bass and go to yoga classes. Mm. And she said, I think you should do that every day. And she said, teach me yoga. Will you teach me yoga? Mm. And I was like, Absolutely. So she became like my first yoga student and I would just take whatever I did in class that day and kind of like bring it to me in a lesson. But I really wasn't qualified to teach. I was just sharing practice. Let's say I was just practicing with her, like kind of doing it and she was uh -huh. doing it along with me, you know. But then later on, as you know, I did ride the wave and teach a lot of group classes. Mm -hmm. But as I mentioned earlier on in this conversation, I wrote that piece because I had injuries and pain and stuff that came up. And some of the things that we were teaching back then, I was teaching those crazy amounts of classes a week, you know, like we were teaching over 20 classes a week yeah, and running all over the city for anyone. Yeah. I did it for years, but my body started to break down. And, you know, ultimately what happened was I took this big trip to India and I met this teacher who kind of was asking me this question, how do you feel? Which my other teachers had not asked me before. Mm. And ultimately when I got back, I couldn't go back to those other classes anymore. And that's when I really got into Desika Char teachings. That's when I met Mark. And that's when I like, mm. I started having a self-practice basically. I stopped going to yoga classes and only practicing by myself at home. Right. And I figured out, I learned some of the primary principles, I think, that Desika Char is sort of known for, which is what yoga therapy is kind of built on in a lot of ways. Like now, where in this about. timeline was the work that you were doing with uh, Allison, with Allison West? Well, I, before I went to India, I mean, I, I practiced with Allison for, after Jiva, I got kind of disenchanted when they, when you left and Allison left, because yeah. they decided everybody had to go to Kirtan and it got kind of, uh, started to go in a more culty direction or whatever. Yeah, uh, we I I went with Allison because she was like to me. I thought of her as like the smartest teacher I had at that point because mm -hmm. she yeah. was so studied in like different systems, and she wasn't aligning herself with one in particular. She was doing a very kind of comparative analysis. Well, she, she was at, say, she was at the Desika Char seminars at Colgate. So yeah, she she exposed me to all like Iyengar, Ashtanga, Desika Char. I remember, she had someone come do a session with us. So. She, I liked that. I liked that she was taking, she had like an art history background. Mm -hmm. So I think she was looking at things from this very wide view and that was appealing to me. And I just mm -hmm. thought she was smart. So I just studied with her quite diligently for a couple of years. She was a scholar teaching research, basically. That was her mode as a scholar. You know, you research this, you research that, and then you synthesize it somehow. Yeah. I felt like she was one of the early, and I know it's kind of cliche now, but like teacher of teachers, types like she really positioned herself like that from the beginning mm -hmm. um and you know because she was sort of 
hard edged. You like, you know, you remember the early days before she softened. And I think a lot of other teachers softened over the years, but yeah, yeah. In those earlier times, it was, she was doing in her regular classes, what is now considered yoga teacher training. Mm-hmm. And I remember when she did her first 200 hour training, after they announced the 200 hour standards, I had already been studying with her for a couple of years. And I, I knew all the material already. Mm. And so all these people came in who hadn't met her before. Yeah. And I was like the one who kind of knew how to do everything. Cause I just been in class for two years, like four days a week. Now you were already nursing some injuries you'd acquired in the Ashtanga and some of the Jiva practice, the Jiva Mukti practice, right? At that point. I was, I think for a long time, I, I didn't recognize my injuries as injuries because uh-huh. I was of that conditioned view that pain meant opening. So I had a really, uh, I think, incorrect idea I was holding about my body. Mm. And it just got, like you've said, I've heard you say, because I've taken your course, like first your body whispers to you, and then it tries to talk to you reasonably, and then it starts screaming at you. And I just think over time, it got to the point where it started to scream at me, you know? And then it lays you flat on your back, so you can't do anything but listen. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That happened too. Definitely. I've been there too. I've been there too more than once. Um, yeah. So, um, and the, the, I'm not going to ask you the same question I asked Gary because it's a different context, but uh, this word clinician, as you mentioned, has so many different shades of meaning, some, not all of which are positive, right? But just watching you, and we're when, this is a preview for people who maybe aren't going to see the second hour, who you know don't want to drop you know fifteen bucks on a month, which is a great deal, by the way. Um, you have a, a little talk with with this student of yours at the very beginning, and um, the method of of of, of dialogue and the redirecting her to her own experience is very interesting. And it reminded me of the the times that I was paying exquisite attention to the way Desikachar would interact with people as well. You know, um, and at first there would, all there would be would be talking. And, you know, half the people in the room were getting antsy, wondering when the yoga was going to start. And and that was the most important yoga I saw happening even before any practices were were given, right? And you have an interesting, and this is a highly modified class that you're you're teaching in this video that we're going to look at. You're you're doing a chair assisted version of salutations and various other exercises. Not and there's one be- other person there doing without a chair too, which I really liked. Yeah, right, and. You know, you you admitted in this dialogue that hey, you know, my body's not in the best shape right now, so I want to be using the chair, right? Yeah. So yeah. this is what we're doing. Yeah. But underlying all that is a pretty standard class structure that you do use. And um, at what point did you decide this is my this is my jam? I'm not going to reinvent a new sequence every week. I found something that works. I'm going to stick with it. Was that a decision that that you remember? making or was it just a gradual sort of thing that uh, eventually started happening? 
it was a, a very conscious choice that I made at some point. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I was known for creating sequences and I have very specific memory. I've told this story before of coming up with a really cool sequence the night before and then going to teach the class in the morning. And there was like maybe five people there and, you know, three of them were nowhere near what I had planned for. Like, it just wasn't a class for them, Yeah. but I didn't have a plan B. So basically what did you do? I taught to the two people who could do it. And then just was like as encouraging as I could be to the three people who had a miserable class. Uh-huh. And I remember coming away from that and feeling like that class wasn't about what they got. That class was about what I came up with the night before. Yeah. And then after I got into Desikachar teachings and it was all one-to-one in personal practice, my whole goal behind what I was doing at Breathing Project and then what I did when I opened Abiyasa was like, I want to bring this into the group class context. Mm-hmm. So the choice to have a set program played into that for me because I had studied Ashtanga and I thought, well, they've got a set thing. And I also, in my own personal practice, needed a structure to go off of. Like sure. To get myself to have a practice, I needed to know like what poses I was going to do, like how many breaths in each one. Mm-hmm. And I kind of created a structure for myself that yeah. I didn't have to stick to, but it was a structure that held my personal practice. And that's what, at some point when I decided I wanted to stop coming up with power yoga sequences, and I wanted to try to actually do what Desik, I thought Desika Char was doing more, mm. I decided I'm just going to have this kind of simple program. And at first it wasn't that well received. Like the center owner called me to the office. She's like, some students have told me you're doing the same exact thing every time. Is that true? It was Lilia Mead. And I, yeah. I explained to her yeah. that I was really being inspired by Jessica Char and I was making this choice and why. And she came to the class and she ultimately was very supportive and would come to my class because what would happen is, is people would learn it and they would know that I had kind of a thing and it was expected. And then it was very easy for me to go up to people individually, one-to-one and offer all kinds of individual suggestions or choices that made sense for them. So it was actually a tool for me to be able to individualize practice in a group class context because they weren't having to follow choreography all the time. Right. When, when you're, when your main attention is what's the new thing I need to learn to do next it can often go off of your own personal experience. You can only pay attention to so many things at once. If you're there because it's something that's familiar that you've practiced before. And the reason you're back is that you liked it the last time. I'm always reminding teachers about that who come to a weekend workshop, you know, cause there's, there's a lot of new concepts and myth busting and stuff that happens in the workshops I teach. And, and I'll often, in fact, more often than not get this question is like, I'm not sure what to do when I go back to teach, you know, this week. And and I have to remind them, look, whoever shows up to your class is there. If they're coming back, they're there because they liked what you did last time. Don't screw that up, you know. Um, And Deskachar would often say, you know, 90% give them what they expect. Then you can slip in 10% of what you think they need. And that's a similar thing to what I'm hearing for you. In a way, there's more variation available for each individual student if there's less variation in the actual 
predictable structure of of the class situation. Is that a fair way to describe it? It's true. Yes, that is the idea. And then I would just simply add that I don't hold the structure in a any kind of dogmatic way. Like oh. you're allowed to change it however you want. So mm. it's meant not to be something that has to be stuck to, but just something that we can all go off to. It also had to do with that being able for us to do it together at the same time, because we both know, as you said earlier, like a one-to-one situation and then someone doing it by themselves at home is very different than this thing that happened where everybody came to these group classes, Hmm. you know? And uh, so for me, again, these were like choices I made. And it also had to do with simplifying, simplifying practice. I've heard you talk about going and seeing Desikachar use the same simple forms uh, again and again. And I felt the same. I was like, let me just create a simple program that we can utilize and that I can learn to teach really well. Like Uh, rather, I kind of took that philosophy. I just want to teach this one thing really well, not try to teach everything mm -hmm. uh, and just kind of became my focus. Yeah. 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 And there are other systems that, you know, you can go anywhere in the world to a Shivananda center and get the sequence more or less that you're expecting. The same at Integral, uh, you know, uh, Ashtanga, you know, is sort of, sort of built on that whole concept. But there, there's this additional sort of baggage that comes with that sometimes. It's like, this is what the guru came up with, and it's sacred somehow. And um, it's the, each, each thing is there for a reason, uh, and you don't mess with the sequence. That was one of the things that got me out the door at Shivananda is I was messing with the sequence. Um, and I also, I refused a direct order from Swami Vishnu. That'll get you out the door really fast. But <laughs> I saw you had Sukadev on the, on the podcast. Yes. So. He mentioned, he mentioned that he met you back in the day. Well, yeah, because when I, when I left directing the LA center, they, they, um, they initially sent in Mahadevananda, who was a, a big guy. Who was running the the uh, India ashram in Nayardam, and then um, Srinivasan was there, and he's currently running the ranch in upstate New York. And then I think Sukadev showed up, and they already had moved to the place. And I think I, I met him just briefly there. Well, but we were contemporaries; we were there in the same sort of era. Uh, I was trained in '79. I think he was there in 1980 or something. And yeah, it was really well, interesting. I think I think you made a good point about the structures, though, because I think that's right there's a difference between a set structure that has to be stuck to or a set structure that has added its understanding that you're at some point you would abandon the structure as well. Cause to me, I always saw the group classes as a way for someone to learn the things that they would need to have their own personal practice. Mm-hmm. And to me, that means they don't even necessarily have to go to yoga classes unless it's a pleasure for them to do so, but that it had to do with them developing their own barometers, their own discernment. You know, Desi Acharya said, you don't check their poses, you check their discernment. And I was intrigued by all of those aspects of practice. Hmm. So I I made a class that I felt it looked enough like a vinyasa yoga class that people expected that they wouldn't be totally freaked out. Uh But still, we would just do inhale, arms up, exhale, arms down. It was like super simple forms. Um, And I became known as the breath guy at the yoga center. Yeah. Because I was emphasizing Ujjayi so much. Mm. But again, that was sort of the, the transition into. And then to your initial question about one-to-one, when yeah. I made that switch at certain point, 
I began to think about what I was doing when I was in a room with people, because there was this time where it was all these private students calling, right? Right. And so when I had the same experience that you talked about, where you're in a room with someone and they're like, my neck hurts, <laughs> can you help it? What should I do? Uh, like the Desika Char teachings and the simple emphasis on breath and stirasuka and all those concepts were what I relied upon. Because they, it was based on this principle that it fits to you. I'm here to help you figure out how to do a practice that's going to serve you. Yeah. And, and also the perspective of there's so much more that's working that's not working here. And that's our starting point. Because otherwise, and, and this is one of the somewhat negative connotations I think we can get with the word clinical, is that it, it often gets us into this mindset of uh, symptomology and uh, focusing on what's gone wrong and having the answers that will help fix the thing that's gone wrong. Um, when in fact, what's most healing for people by the time they arrive to someone like you or to me for help is they probably already tried a bunch of stuff that you know is supposed to fix the symptoms or that focuses on what's gone wrong. And to whatever degree it hasn't completely helped them, and they seek out something like yoga, you know, we have that unique um, opportunity to be the person who's there that will remind them of how much is still going right. And that's a, that's a huge um, perspective shift for a lot of people who have been maybe in chronic pain or have had, you know, issues that, that have persisted for a long period of time that, that they didn't get adequate help with. And, that's something I had to keep reminding myself because, you know, you, you were there for a lot of the clinics we did at the breathing project where they bring in someone who had some even some pretty intense stuff that I had to look up on Wikipedia because I'd never <laughs> quite heard of that disease or injury before. Um, and there's always this little voice in my head that freaks out. It's like, I'm just a yoga teacher. What am I supposed to do with this? I, I, I can't even pronounce this thing. <laughs> um, and so that's a perspective I would have to keep reminding myself of just to calm myself down when, when they bring someone in, who's got this really intense stuff going on. Like they brought, they brought in a woman who had a, a double, you know, a lung transplant, you know, I've worked with people that had brainstem tumors. I've worked with, I mean, you know, and it's very, I, I yeah. I remember when I, after I got back from those meetings that we talked about earlier and I was making the promotional stuff for Abhyasa Yoga Center, mm -hmm. I wrote practice that adapts to individual needs, including chronic and acute conditions. Mm -hmm. So I had all these people who would come in because their doctors said, try yoga for one reason or another, huh. but they already had, as you say, like teams of doctors and like they knew about their condition way more than I did. So the role that I was playing was a supportive role and was an empowering role for them to feel like they could find some kind of healing from within the inherentness of their own system. Yeah. And that was a different thing. And it certainly was about listening to their, who paying attention to who they are and listening and the practice being adaptable in the way that I hold it so that it would be fine for someone to make whatever changes they need to. Mm. Yeah. Even in a group class. 
Like that mindset, I think, is what I was trying to bring to the group classes, which is a clinical application of sorts because it's about dealing with actual people, yeah. but not that reductionist version that we talked about earlier, right? Yeah. If, if, if there was like one word that could not be misunderstood or miscontextualized in any way that adequately, just adequately described the stuff that we do with people. Uh, it would be a lot easier, but I don't think there is. Um, I don't, as you know, I don't think therapist quite cuts it. Um, instructor is like, well, I think that's good for someone who's just graduated from a 200 hour, <laughs> but maybe they're not a teacher yet because you need experience, right? To be a teacher, um, educator. Uh, I, I use that quite a bit and for purposes of this podcast and these discussions, I, I'm I'm just running the clinical thing up the flagpole, you know. Mm -hmm. And for all I know, it's 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 repelling people as much as it's attracting them to listen to these conversations. <laughs> I don't have no idea. I, you know, I'm open to hearing all perspectives on it. Um, so you no, know, I get it because I think that uh, from what I know of your work and what it seems like you're interested in talking about on this show hmm. is that there is something that can happen between two people very often mm. in a space of practice or of yoga, or dare I say healing, not to sound uh, cliche, but that we've seen happen, that we wouldn't be doing it up for all these years. We've had enough times where we are in that experience and we, we engage in this activity with them and it is helpful or it seem seemingly helpful to them. And there's a very purposeful feeling that mm. you get from that, that feels like this is why I do this. Sure. And there's an extreme vulnerability that, that shows up when it's safe enough and, and, and the, the boundaries are respected. Uh, and, it's a it's a it's a feeling I know I've had in the past that tells me it's like ooh, there's something special happening here and I better treat it uh, appropriately and and not take it for granted or uh, abuse it or violate this situation in any way. And look, we all learn these sorts of things by making mistakes, you know, over the years, um, but. Unless that behavior is being engendered in the in the teacher or the practitioner or the clinician by a, a sense of valuing that space and wanting to protect it, I don't think any external set of ethical guidelines or rules or regulations is is going to get the job done. In fact, I think it provokes a, a, a reactive force in the opposite direction in a lot of people. You know, it's it's sort of like. It, well, it's an alignment of sorts. You know, we talk about the alignment of the body and, you know, if there's rules for the alignment of this pose and you're trying to learn them so you can do it safely, eh, that's one way to kind of get started with the conversation. But unless you can feel within yourself what alignment is and is not, it's really not getting to the deeper levels. And I, I think the way we handle our interactions with other people is very much the, the same way. This is a very long intro to conversation with, about, I think, the second piece that you got a lot of attention from on Isutra, and that was yogis behaving badly. 
Um, mm. Do you remember that exchange? Kind of refresh my memory. There's been many of those back the blog days where I've caused yeah. a bunch of stirs, I remember. Well, it started with some news items uh, about some, we don't need to mention names, they're, they're all famous at this point, um, about some, uh, let's just say, um, mm. uh, boundary challenged behavior by yoga. Oh, right, 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 right. I wrote, uh, what was it called? Um, ethical imperatives and sexually responsible behavior or something like an that. offshoot of the yogis behaving badly. Yes, uh, yes. Right. Yes. So, uh, and for those who aren't listeners to Jay's podcast, he, he, he did meet his wife in yoga class. Yes, I for people who don't know what we're talking about, this might be too inside old old stories. I um, wrote a piece about I was asking whether or not it was okay for yeah. a yoga teacher to date students, and yeah. I was being very transparent. Like That's that was one of the earlier times where I ripped down all the all the walls as I've come to do over the years, and I just like bared my soul and was super honest. And a lot of people took issue with some things I said because I think they didn't really understand what I was doing or what right. I was saying, yeah. but my wife, who's now my wife for 17 years, she read it and she yeah. thought, oh, he's really an honest guy. And that mm. actually led to us coming together because she read that, that piece. Which I think is remarkable that, you know, the, your willingness to address this, this issue, which, which everyone knows is important uh but usually only from when it goes wrong you know your willingness to to address it and have a conversation about it led to the exact thing that you were writing about because you're like hey i'm a yoga teacher i do this all the time where the hell else am i going to meet people you know and <laughs> and yeah. the, the very act of being willing to communicate about that attracted someone who read it who was like wow this guy sounds cool. Well, I also think that was an early precedence for me because especially if you remember the early days of the podcast and those intros I would do, it was all about wanting to tear down kind of the idea of what a yoga teacher was. There was like this glossy Instagram yoga teacher doing uh -huh. the poses and everybody had these ideas about yoga teachers who were like, didn't have pain and were like these ethereal beings or whatever. And I knew firsthand because I had a little bit of glimpse into yeah. some of the big name teachers and whatever. And like, they all had lots of pain and were sleeping with heating pads and shit. What do you think and I was like, wait a second. Table over there when, you know. I was just like, <laughs> that's not the real deal. So my, I've always had this thing of, I call say radical transparency, sometimes to a fault, but like it was wanting to like expose what was really happening. Cause I had been this yoga teacher for however long and people were starting to look at me like I was somehow, I'm some bigger name teacher. And I was like, wait a second. And then when I started the show, that's when I was just basically admitting, like I'm in massive pain, the center's falling apart. You know, I was like, let's be honest about it. So I think that article that actually led to my mm -hmm. life partnership with my wife was an early precedence for kind of a practice of doing that, of just saying, okay, I'm just going to like share mm -hmm. <laughs> what's going on and let the lessons come from there. Now, I think I've done that to a fault at some times <laughs> over the years, you have, you have but I've, I've got bit. older and wiser about it. I think as time's gone on. 
Yeah. Was it? Was there any point at which? Well, well yeah, actually, she doesn't listen to the podcast, right? So, I mean, no, not really. <laughs> so I mean, she did in the early times. It's one of the things I love about my wife is she she doesn't uh, care about that stuff. So, I mean, she does because she supports me in my my creative pursuits and my teaching, and I and I think she believes in me, you know. But she's just like do the dishes, you know. She doesn't. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't want to hear me jabber on about whatever, you know. And she doesn't hang out with other people who listen to it who go to her. Did you hear what Jay said today? Nothing like that. It's a really interesting phenomenon because there's a lot of people in my life who like people, my family, or people who live around here who I see all the time who don't listen to the show. Yeah. But people who are like all over the world who I've never met who do listen to the show. And in some ways they actually know what's going on with me in certain ways more than people right around me who don't, because I do share so much on a weekly basis of what's going on. Yeah. It, it is an odd sort of, um, sort of remote intimacy uh, that the internet allows us to have with people anywhere on the planet, really. Um, and yeah. And there is that contrast to, you know, the, the folks that are really close to you, other, you know, other family members, friends, uh, people who get to see you all the time aren't tuned into that very much or at all. No, I mean, they know me in other ways because they see me picking up my kid from school or whatever, rather than like on like an online class or something. But I do think that it's just, uh, it's an interesting thing and I was just thinking about it today because I had a class with three people who have literally been coming to my live stream classes for, I'd say, four years. These uh -huh. are like regular students who I met some of them in person when I used to travel. I met a couple of them, but a number of them, I've only ever had them online. And uh -huh. I was thinking about how, in a way, like right now, you and I, we're not in the same moment together mm -hmm. because this is trying to stimulate that, but we're not in the same room. We're not in the same moment. I'm in my immediate moment and you're in your immediate moment and they're synchronized mm -hmm. in an asynchronous universe of the internet. We've synchronized my moment and your moment at the same time, which is like the closest thing we can get to being in the same moment. Yeah. But that there is something that happens in there. Like you were even saying earlier, like there's an exchange that happens between people. And when you talk about watching Desika Char and me having that conversation with the student that we're going to look at yeah. in the second half today, that interplay, that interpersonal interplay and interaction and connection is where I, I, I think the real power is what's where I find it most exciting in terms of doing yoga and sharing yoga. Well, that was, if you, if you could distill the main message of what Desika Char taught, into that idea it was that yoga is relationship and that was the consistent theme he kept coming back to regardless of whatever other esoteric principles or something from the sutras or the upanishads or whatever it is and he would often use those as you know uh focus point focal points for for lessons it all boiled down to that uh and um it sounds sort of trite and overly simplified at first and you know that there's not much to a statement like that but after what is it 30 years now or so <laughs> more um it really makes 
a deeper and deeper impression on me that that that's what he chose to to focus on and keep bringing us back to because after all i mean you you just you just described these people who've been coming to your online classes for what is it three years you said something like that yeah more it's the same damn class every time. What the I know, we do the same poses every time. It's what the are they thing back ever. for? You know, I I think that there's something to, and this is something I've talked about on the show a lot. There's a ritual to it. There's a certain sangha we've created together, space that we've created together. There is a a feeling of being in it with others. You know, even though. You know, there's a, there is a value. I mean, as much as I I think it needs to be about personal practice, even when we come together to do it in the same room, I there is some real value to people coming together, like-minded people coming together and breathing in sync. You know, uh, there's so many cases of our ancestry doing this around the fire. You know, like the first Veda. I remember you talking about being around the fire. You know, and to me, it's a it's a version of that in my own life and the return again and again with these same people and the same ritual and our lives have changed and things have happened and they, and we've, that's all happened in, in a been experienced in our practice rituals as well together. Mm. There's something to the spirit of what you're saying with Desika Charm, what I was so inspired by that it seemed to me the, the transmission or the healing or the feeling of understanding that comes was in this space of friendship and engaging one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he would call that Mitra. The, mm-hmm. the, um, well, you were, you were at the event we produced at Kripala where we played that video of him talking about that. You know, it says, I don't call them students. These are my friends. <laughs> I call them okay. friends. Uh, and he referred to that as a uh, Mitra. Um, yeah, and it's 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 interesting how these last two and a half plus years have, on the one hand, made that kind of connecting more challenging, but also made it that much more valued uh, because of the challenges, and uh, has allowed us to do it in this in this medium that we're doing right now you know, like mm-hmm. the Zoom Sangha. Uh, I think we found ways of make of doing it. And again, I was certainly reluctant. You mentioned Josh. I just, I fought with Josh back in the day and he started me live streaming classes back in 2016. Yeah. And I fought him and I was like, what are you talking about? And like, he was right about a lot of stuff. But at this point, I really, I've been doing it for enough years now that there's, there's no denying that I'm act, I'm having yo- what I would consider yoga with people yeah. and the same kind of exchanges and even some ways more rewarding exchanges because people are in their living rooms, as I've heard you talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so, the end of the Shavasana. How often have you wanted after a good Shavasana just to be left the fuck alone, you know? Yeah. Like, why do I have to get up here? Why is there another class coming? Someone else wants my spot and you can feel it. It's like that little thing that it just if you could only just stay there for as long as you wanted and, and and so that's why i don't end with people sitting back up and oming with some of these sessions that i do it's like you're at home you're just like 
I'm going to say goodbye now before we start the Shavasana. Yeah. Because just stay as long as you want. It's open. Yeah, I mean, I do. I do like to bring in clothes, but everybody knows they don't have to close. They can stay and they can just yeah. listen to the ohms. Or they, sometimes people just turn off and I'm like, see ya, have a good one, you know? No, no you. line at the bathroom either. No, no, not at all. And I just think that, you know, in certain ways, as we even said earlier, there was kind of this time where the internet felt like, ooh, I'm going to put things out into the internet and maybe I'm going to get bigger and I'm going to grow. And, you know, John Friend created his whole thing. And like, there was like a period of like yoga teachers trying to like brand and grow. And then mm. it kind of, with everything that's happened now, I just don't have that idea about that. This is not important to try to get as many people as possible anymore. It's well, yeah. It's about getting like, the enough people <laughs> to make it work, yeah. to make it viable. But the, the people who are, who want to be there, who are called to be with you in it, you know, rather than trying to like tailor make it so that it can entice everybody in or something. Yeah. It, it's, it, it reminds me of, um, you know, who Amanda Palmer is the musician, singer, songwriter, she was, she was married to Neil Gaiman. Uh, Sounds familiar. I'm not sure I know her too well, though. Yeah. Well, she has a TED Talk called The Art of Asking, where she talks about this, and she wrote a book about it. She was one of the first uh, music artists who, who really successfully uh, transitioned to uh, having her connecting directly with her audience and funding her art that way. And and what, what had it would happen was the last... The album she did on her last deal, her last label deal, okay, um, according to the label's standards, didn't sell well enough for them to keep her going. It only sold like 17,000 units or something. Um, and so she was like, well, screw this. You know, I'm just, I, I have a list I've been accumulating. I have, you know, people who like what I do. And, and she decided this is even before patreon or anything like that but she decided to just connect directly with her audience and cut out the middleman and she did like a kickstarter kind of thing for her next album she raised a million dollars to produce her next album and guess how many people contributed Seventeen thousand. <laughs> hey, right? there you go. You don't even you think about it because she would probably only get a couple dollars off each album with the big company. She yeah. can charge ten dollars per album, and only half of those people buy it. Right. She's good for the year. She can make another album. You know, right. like yeah, that one thousand true fans idea. That's what Josh really kind of turned me on to. Exactly, exactly. And, and so, over you know, the years, coming back to where we started in terms of what I'm doing now, like. I, I, I think sometimes people think I have more reach than I do, but I have created a little thing that I do that there's a group of people who appreciate and yeah. that's enough to keep it going, you know? Yeah. Well, um, we, we just have a few minutes left here, but I, I it does make me wonder um, because I, I, I know you're still very much on the fence about getting back out there as the touring teacher again. Um, well, I know when you say that I, my first in-person workshop in more than two years is this Saturday. Uh -huh. So I am kind of getting back on the horse a little bit. I haven't made plans to do any more extensive travel. Cause honestly, I just don't know 
the tales I hear of the flights getting canceled and uh, all the heartache around it. I just, I haven't been willing to brave it. And I, I've been finishing, I've been kind of this first year of doing this online teacher training that I developed, I've been making it as we've been going along. So I'm almost done. We're almost finished with it the first year and making all the modules because I've been kind of co-creating them with people. Mm. And um, so I feel like come this new year, I'm, I'm kind of getting ready and going to probably start scheduling some stuff, but right. probably not, not as long as I did before. Yeah. The, the teacher training thing won't take that much energy to keep going from this point on once it exists as a thing. Cause I won't have to be making all the modules. They're all, they're all made now, but. Where's the workshop this weekend? It's with the yoga teacher association of the Hudson Valley. You probably oh, know them well. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, they've been reaching out to me for years and I was like traveling all over the world and I never really hooked up. And then not too long ago, they reached out and they said, Hey, you want to come do a workshop? And I was like, looked at, it's like two hour drive. I was like, yes, let's do it. So you don't have to get on a plane. Great. We're driving to Montreal this weekend and I'm doing a workshop up there uh, alongside the Fascia Research Congress. Uh, (laughs) uh, But got some travel coming up. I'm going to do California and I'm going to be at, try yoga in uh october okay. so okay, the uh, new regime is in place <laughs> yeah well i'll say hi to jonathan for you we will see him but it is okay i know but transitioned out of yes. the whole thing there and um we'll see how it goes but uh it's it's sparse it's pretty sparse and you know you have to yeah. build an extra day uh arriving to make sure if there's a delay that you can still get there when you're supposed to teach and you know, yeah, well, as you know, like right before everything fell apart, I was doing like my living room tour style and just yeah. finding small spaces and getting small groups of people together. And that's probably what I'll go back to doing mm. uh, initially rather than trying to like, because I don't even know if there is a circuit anymore. There was like a circuit of all those places, but uh, all those places are not all those places anymore. There's, that's right. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. So if half of them still exist, that's a lot. Yeah. That's yeah. True. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's been, you know, having been in this as long as I have and seeing, you know, the, the industry be created and then transform and now, you know, transforming again and in decline in many ways, just in terms of, you know, how many places exist that could uh, invite or host a visiting teacher. Um it's clear that uh, this way of communicating, um, uh, the on-demand, the streaming, the the podcasting, it just it, it's 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 got to have a permanent place in how we do what we do. There's just no way around it. I mean, I, I really came to think of the podcast as like a, a sane form of social media for me. I, I left social media, but it was a way of putting out ideas and having the kind of conversations that I was always trying to spark with the blog writing and the common threads that we would do um, in this kind of more long form way. So it was a very natural progression for me, but I, I have to say that it's a much better, like it's one of the cases for why there are certain things that are better about the situation than before. Cause I don't know that the running all around the world, that wasn't a very sustainable thing. You know, you would go to the same place every year. That first two years would be pretty good, but then there would be that third year where it would like slump off. Yeah. No, we, and, we learned right away. You can't go back exactly a year later. It's because yeah. you have a serious sophomore slump. So we made it like 18 months minimum to right. go back to a place. So we don't wear out our welcome. 
but you know, all bets are off now and we haven't been anywhere for a couple of years. So that, that time lag is, is. Yeah. That's um, what I'm saying. It's a whole new. It is a whole new thing. So listen, since we're going to sign off here for the first section, uh, just let people who are listening to this part know where they can find you and, and learn about your stuff. They can find all the stuff I'm doing at jbrownyoga.com. Got the podcast and that training. Actually, I've got a new group starting in January. So January, um, 2023, just to yeah. evergreen the material here. We ought to know when we're doing this. Yeah, yeah. We have like actually a number of things we've been playing around with too, in terms of like, you know, I'm sure you, you know, this. like people want to have, some people really want to work with a group and some people want to do things more independently and um, we've been able to find a way to accommodate both of those things. So, hmm. yeah. at one point, you may have enough graduates to warrant a, a big, grand in-person reunion somewhere. I love that. I mean, I'm all about trying to meet people, see people again. You know, I, like I said, that's kind of where my focus is turning now. After creating this whole online thing, yeah. I'm ready well, to maybe get the back next in the room with people. Going into the retreat business, it's like, hey, everyone that's been connecting with me through electronic media for the last 10 years okay we're gonna have a grand gathering i don't want to use that term that's a on a sorry thing but no, anyway. i don't know man i don't <laughs> want to have to i mean i definitely want to get together with people but i don't know if it has to be a grand gathering it could be small gatherings too i'd be fine with that <laughs> yeah yeah it's funny how how uh the bigger is better is always a better mentality just isn't really that much of uh, a viable or sustainable option anymore. Uh, yeah, that's kind of what I was talking about before. I mean, that's really what I, where I've come to is I really don't, I'm not trying to make it big mm -hmm. at all. Just trying to like, like I said, to, I remember when we had that Jessica Char thing and I was sitting there and I was looking at all of you up there who were sort of like the people who were footsteps I'm walking in. And I made the comment. I was like, there were, there were people up there who I felt like were examples of what it is to kind of hold true to your practice and your teaching and your integrity through the waves of the industry and all of it, you know? And I just thought to me, that's, I don't know, that I took inspiration of, from folks like yourself in terms of people well, who have always kind of said what you really thought and stuck to your guns and, you know held held true to something that was important to you and that was clear it's nice to hear because uh it was a lot of work putting that together and um i don't think something like that could happen uh now um for a variety of reasons um but uh yeah i hope to have most of the people that were at that event at Kripalu, which is just people who don't know that was a at Kripalu in 2018, starting on June 21st, which would have been Desikachar's 80th birthday. And it was myself uh, and Lydia organizing it, and uh, Larry Payne, Richard Miller, Gary Kraftsau, Sridham, uh, Navtej Johar, uh, Mark Whitwell, um, and, and of course, uh, Mirka Kraftsau uh, was, was there also. Um, did I leave anyone out? Uh, I think that was it. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, I definitely want to see if I can get to talk to a lot of those folks on this podcast as well. So, um, yeah. So we're going to take a little break um, and uh, uh, signing off for those of you just hearing the first hour here. And just a reminder, you can get the premium stuff, breathingproject.com.
cheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapcheapc